good to be back in the house of the Lord again with you all. It's so amazing just to look out and see all your faces and just think, we get to do this. You know, we get to gather as the body, and I am not going to take one Sunday for granted ever again. Amen? Well, we're going to jump right into the Word this morning. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you already know that we have rooted this coming ministry year, September all the way to June, in Psalm 127, verse 1, which reads, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And as we've began this ministry year, we've began by looking at God's presence, at God's presence through the story of Nehemiah. And today what we want to do is we want to look at when God desires to make his presence known through his people. And I think that testimony that we just saw will serve as such a powerful example of how God wants to make his presence known through you and through me. That sometimes when it comes to God's presence, the question that we need to ask is not where, but who. And I remember in December of 2015, it was a a Wednesday morning when, sadly, an armed man and woman walked into a social services center in San Bernardino, California. And there on that Wednesday morning, they opened fire on the residents and the staff, and sadly, tragically, 14 people were killed and 22 others were injured. And the scene sort of ended, the event ended uh, with the police, you know, uh, uh, shooting and killing both perpetrators. And when everything was all said and done, this tragedy was considered to be the most deadliest shooting in the United States since Sandy Hook in 2012. And like you expect, people were sad, people were grieving, people were confused. But I think the emotion that defined that moment, if you remember, if you can put yourself back six years ago, was anger. People were angry. It was like, not again. Like, really? Like, and it didn't take long as we all have come to learn that in tragedy and crisis, how the political walls get put up and grenades get launched over from side to side over things like gun rights and mental health and, and all that. But I remember the next day that on this New York, uh, the New York Daily News, this newspaper in New York City, Release this on the paper, this headline, this emotionally charged headline that I still remember to this day. And there in big white letters were the words, God is not fixing this. I think it was up there. God isn't fixing this. And all around those white letters were blurbs of of tweets and slogans of these mostly right-wing politicians, you know, sharing their thoughts and prayers. And there it says, God isn't fixing this. And my first instinct was to think, I mean, I was a little bit offended when I saw this. I thought if there was anything that defined this secular moment, it's that headline. To think that God, you know, if the mess that we humans got ourselves into, that God isn't the solution to this mess. If anything, he's more of the problem than the solution. And that if there's ever going to be meaningful change, it's not going to come through God. It's going to come through us as humans. You know, and at first I brushed it off as this arrogant depiction of a godless culture. But the more that I began to think about it, and as it resonated with me and sat with me, I started to see it in a different light. And I started to wonder that what if the anger and frustration isn't pointed towards God so much as those who invoke his name, who say they, they carry and believe in God and they do nothing about it? 
You know, what if God isn't fixing this mess because God, the way that God is fixing this mess is by calling those whom he has empowered with his spirit to be the ones who go and fix this mess, you know, to, to bring the kingdom of God on from heaven onto earth. And now I'm not so naive to think that somehow this newspaper headline was this theological reflection of God and what God is doing. If anything, this was more of a, you know, a chance to dunk, politically dunk on your opponents. But it does raise some important questions to us even today. That in times of tragedy and crisis, like where, where is God's presence? Like where is God? And you know, where is God fixing all this? And if so, how is he fixing all of this? And for the last few weeks, we've been reflecting on God's presence in the book of Nehemiah. And we've seen God use different leaders at different times in this story to rebuild and reestablish Jerusalem as a city. You know, and, and like Pastor Jason began this series at, when we get to the end of the story, we see that despite all this rebuilding, all this effort, that something was missing, and that something was, of course, God's presence. And last week, we looked at how Israel tried to make this covenant with God to kind of establish this, this covenantal relationship with God, to, that to God would, they would do all these things, and God would bless them with his presence, and God is silent. God doesn't answer their request to initiate this relationship. And it's not that God's presence is literally missing from this story, right? Like Psalm 139 says, where can I flee from your presence? I can go to the heavens, and you are there, and I can go to the very depths of hell, and you are there. There's nowhere I can go on this earth where I can get away from your presence. But it's that God can and sometimes does make his presence hidden from us for reasons that are God, God's alone. For Israel, why God seemed to hide his presence from them was that God had a better plan. It wasn't to reestablish what he had done in old, but to bring something new, to do a new work, to do, a, as Isaiah said, a new thing. But when you and I do look close enough, we see that God's presence is not, in fact, missing, but that God isn't making his presence known in the ways that we are used to seeing when we read God's word. Like Moses and the Red Sea, or Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we see God's presence on display. But that's not what Nehemiah does best. No, what Nehemiah does best is it trains us not to see God's presence but like Jesus said to the Apostle Thomas, to believe that God is present not by seeing, but by unseeing. Like I said, when God's presence is quote-unquote missing, the question is not always where, but who God is making himself known through. What if in moments that we can't see his presence, those are the moments that God is calling you not to see, but rather to be his presence that what if the goal is not so much for you and I just to simply enjoy his presence, but to be his presence to those who need to find him the most? As Pentecostal scholar Chris Green says, the absence of God is nothing but God being present in and through us to those in need. And when I look at the story of Nehemiah, this is where I see God's presence, that God's presence being manifested not in certain places, but in certain people. People like Zerubbabel, who rebuilds the temple, like through Ezra, the scribe, who reestablishes obedience to the word, to the Torah, through Nehemiah, who rebuilds the wall so that Israel could be protected from her enemies. You know, when you take a closer look, not at the book, but at the person of Nehemiah, what you will observe through his life, that this was a man who was remarkably close with God. 
That even though he was in exile, he had a relationship, a sort of intimacy with God. It's like the early church father, Gregory of Nyssa, once said, it's time for you, noble friend, to be known by God and to become his friends. I think Nehemiah was someone who fit that description. He was a friend of God. He was known by God. And while God's presence may not be abundant in the story of Nehemiah, God's presence is certainly abundant in the person of Nehemiah. And when you read the story, and we don't have time, of course, to go through the whole book of Nehemiah, but what you'll see is that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, that every time he was faced with a decision, he didn't run right into the decision. He stopped and he prayed. He sought God's counsel. But every time he prayed, he always followed up his prayer with action. You know, he prayed, but then he acted. He, there was intimacy with God, but there was also obedience. And so as the story of Nehemiah begins, and remember, we're sort of starting at the end and working our way back forward. And, and so here we are at the very beginning of Nehemiah. And the beginning of Nehemiah is actually set 15 years after the book of Ezra ends. You know, we know that Bab- the, the Babylonian captivity of Israel took 50 years. 50 years they're in exile. But when we begin Nehemiah, it's actually been 100 years since the very first people returned uh, to the land of Israel. But not all Jews made the trip back. You know, some chose to stay. You know, some chose to see that the better life that for them was in Babylon or what was now Persia after Persia had overtaken the Babylonians. Some perhaps did not choose to stay, but were forced to stay for reasons we don't know. And we don't know whether Nehemiah was someone who, by consequence, chose to stay or was forced to stay. What we do know is that when the story of Nehemiah begins, we find Nehemiah in a place of position, in a position of privilege and influence. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. So as a cupbearer, he was responsible with testing the king's food, the king and queen's food, before it was brought to the king and queen, their food and the drink, to ensure that nobody had poisoned or, or tampered with the food. But not just, well, that was not the only role he carried. As cupbearer, he was somebody who found himself close to the king. In fact, perhaps he was closer to the king than anybody else in all the kingdom. He was a man of influence. He was also considered to be a friend to the king and the queen. But on this day... Some men from Judah came to see Nehemiah. Why Nehemiah? We don't know. It doesn't say. But what Nehemiah does is he asks these men from Judah a question about the state of his people back home in Jerusalem. Here's what Nehemiah asks them in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. You know, while the text doesn't say, I I sort of think of them coming to Nehemiah as sort of the last chance, the last hope that they have. Sort of like Princess Leia in A New Hope, you know, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. It's like, help us, Nehemiah, you're our only hope. You know, they come to Nehemiah, and it's not like they're just passing through. They're not like that friend that calls you up, and it's like, hey, I'm just passing through Ottawa on the way to Montreal. I thought I would stop in for a cup of coffee. They're like, we're not just passing through Persia on our way to who knows where. They're not like, no, no, no. We need God to do something, and we come to you because we don't know what to do. We don't have any more answers. If God doesn't intervene, we are in trouble. And the moment that they share the state of Jerusalem, what has happened to the people, something in Nehemiah's heart begins to stir. It's like 
There was someone else in the room. There's the people of Judah answered his question. It's like God was answering the question, not just to his head, but to his heart. Nehemiah's body may have been in Persia, but now his heart is in Jerusalem with a city he has never been to and a people he has never met. But when your heart is for God, naturally, or perhaps I should say supernaturally, your heart will be for others. Here we see one of the most important lessons for how God moves among his people. You see, before ever God moves in a nation, before ever God moves in a city or a region or a church, God moves in a single person or a select few individuals who are so stirred by what they see that they are moved to do something about it. You know, I know over the years I've shared the stories of the revival in the Hebride Islands, and, but I, I think it always serves as a fitting illustration considering it to be one of the last great revivals we've seen here in the Western world. And I've told the story before about how a revival, an entire region was birthed, oh, because two old ladies, shout out to all of our senior saints in the room, were so disturbed that there was no young people in the church that they basically kidnapped the pastor to an all-night prayer meeting and said, we're not going to stop praying until God does something. That was a revival of birth because, like, there's no teenagers in our church. You know, this morning we gathered with our prayer team to lift up our, our youth leaders, to lift up our youth. It was so amazing to pray for them. But it was like that oh, times 10,000. It's like, we're not going to stop praying night after night. And I'm sure the pastor's like, I want to go home and sleep. They're like, but we're not going to stop praying until God moves. And he did. See, before God ever moves corporately, God moves personally. Terry Walling, a pastor in the States, says, personal renewal will always precede corporate renewal. God will move. He will make his presence known in great and mighty ways. But before he makes his presence known in a place, he makes his presence known in a person. In a few are people who are willing to dig in and seek God when no one else is willing to seek God. That when the, when the general consensus, when the general population thinks things are good right now, that there is a remnant that says, no, 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 God is calling us to greater things. God is calling us to more. That when we to seek God, when everything else seems all right and nobody else who wants to rock, rock the boat, there are people who will seek God because God is faithful to his promises. This is what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was blessed with a burden. God put a burden upon his heart. What is a burden? A burden is a holy passion. It is a burning in your soul for something or someone that God has revealed to your heart. Psalm 51, 16 to 17 says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God delights when we, his children, when our hearts break for the things and people that breaks God's heart. This is what it means to be blessed with a burden. God reveals to your heart. He reveals to your heart people or places or situations or moments that are already breaking his heart. Has God ever blessed you with a burden like this before? I remember back in 2016, 2017, around there when the Syrian refugee crisis was taking place and we as a nation were wondering, what can we do? You know, how can we help? And people were sort of calling the, the, the country to do something. Well, I remember having a conversation with a certain family in my church back in Victoria 
And then we were just sort of spitballing. We're like, what if we as a church, like, took on a family? Like, what if we just said, corporately, we'll sponsor a family, bring them into our church, you know, pay their way, et cetera, et cetera. And we kind of went our ways, and that was that. And a few days went by, a week or two went by. And I remember just, like, thinking about it again. I was like, oh, you know, I should just text them. So I just texted them. I said, hey, I've been thinking about our conversation. And, like, what do you think if we, like, maybe revisit that conversation? Maybe we bring what we've talked about to the lead pastor. And they said, you know, Pastor Terry, you don't understand. Like, ever since we spoke about that, we can't stop thinking about it. I mean, it's like every single day. We can't sleep at night. We've already done some research. We've already prepared a letter to the pastor. We've already looked into how much this is going to cost. That, like, if the church doesn't want to do it, we'll just go around and we'll just do it ourselves. You know, while God had given me a concern for the people of Syria, God had given that family a burden for the people of Syria. Because God blessed you with a burden, not a concern. You know, we, we, often we have concerns. I think all of us here, we have concerns. You know, but a burden. You know, a burden is not just a desire to tweet something and it's like, oh, that's good. Or to put something up on Instagram and say, you know, there. But a burden. I believe every person who's born of the Spirit will at some point in their life have the Holy Spirit download onto their heart a burden. Maybe it will be prayer. Maybe it'll be for revival. Anyone believing for revival? Anyone have a burden for the lost, for the poor, the needy? I, I could go on and on and on and on. But whatever your burden is or might be today, this is where God desires to manifest his presence through you. This is where God has called you to be his presence to those yet to find him. See, this is how God chooses to manifest his presence. That before he makes his presence known to a people, he makes his presence known to a person. God's presence is not always aware. You know, it's not always where God is, but the question I think that God is calling us to ask today is who God is desiring to make himself known through today. So if God has given you this burden, there's so much that we can learn from what happens next in Nehemiah's story. Verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1 says, And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The very first thing that we are to do when God gives us a burden is to take that burden to the Lord in prayer. Because there are some times that we can have a burden, but we need to discern in prayer that the burden that we have is actually from God. Sometimes we can have a burden, and it's scripturally sound, but that's not the burden God has given us. Sometimes we can see things, but God necessarily hasn't called us to, to step into those things. You know, here at Life Center, one of the things we talk about, and I think Pastor Jason has great insight in this, is talking about the difference between seeing and stepping. And how sometimes God allows you to see things before he allows you to step into something. You know, that you, and in fact, Often when God is preparing you to step into something, he actually first opens your eyes to see. And that can be both a blessing and a curse. Because the blessing is you can see things, right, that other people, perhaps even those stepping in that can't see. Like, have you ever had a boss that you're like, I see things you don't see? The boss is stepping in it. You see it, but you're not the boss. Like, I could give you a thousand ways to make things better if you just let me step into that. But that's not your place to step. You're seeing but you're not necessarily stepping. And it can be a curse because without stepping, when we only see, they can make us prone to blame, criticism, self-pride. 
Nehemiah sees, but notice not what he sees, but how he sees what God is showing him. Nehemiah chapter 6, 1, 6 to 7. Nehemiah says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. I think Moses does the hardest part in seeing. He takes ownership. He said he makes it personal. And I, I think this is so important because when we don't take ownership, when we don't take ownership of the burden, when we don't take ownership of the problem, we might be tempted when given a burden to substitute ourselves into the story as the hero of the story rather than God being the hero of the story. You know, if I were to describe to you the current state of our culture, I think the, one of the greatest temptations that we have today is to be similar to that, that we're a culture that sees everything, but we want to own nothing. We want to own nothing. You know, we, the internet has given us this ability to see so much, probably too much. We see everything. And I don't know if we were created to have so much information to see so much that we see today. Every crisis, every day, it seems like something new. And I think our bodies, our minds are being trained to sort of almost crave this information. But we can very quickly when we're only seeing all this information, begin to equate what we see with actually us step as stepping. We can be, think that we're being aware of our injustice, the injustices as actually bringing justice. I talked to one mom recently of some teenagers, and she said, I think something I think is so pronounced, she said, you want to know the diff- biggest difference between my kids' generation and my generation? It's that this generation coming up, they ha- they're, being, they're seeing the weight of the world. And they feel like, and they are being asked to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. You know, there's no wonder there's such a mental health crisis taking place in our young people. They're seeing everything because of social media, because of the internet. And they're not just seeing it all. They're feeling like it's like, ah, I got to do something about it. But Nehemiah doesn't just see the, the sin, the need, the brokenness. He remembers the solution, the answer, and it's not him. He's not the hero of the story. God is. Look at what Nehemiah prays in verse 8 to 10. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah says, remember your promises, O God. Remember, God, what you have said you would do in your word. And it's in this place where Nehemiah sees and takes ownership of, of the sin, he says he makes it personal, but he doesn't, you know, see without remembering the faithfulness and the power and the goodness of God. It's in that place, right in the middle, that Nehemiah is empowered to step. He moves from seeing to stepping. And he says in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of, the, of this man. Notice Nehemiah doesn't pray, God, just make it all better. Or God, get someone else moving on this problem, would you? He says, God, use me to make it better. Use me. 
Nehemiah discerns that the burden on his heart is from God. And if God has given you a burden, if it is in fact from God, you've discerned in prayer that it's from God, that you cannot just stay in the place where you are seeing. You have to step. And the very last thing that Nehemiah does when he takes a step is he counts the cost. The last thing he says here in verse 11 is, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now I was cupbearer. Was he just filling in some missing details, some historical context for you? Or perhaps as he prayed, he was counting the cost that comes with stepping into where God is calling him. To be the cupbearer would be to be in a position of, that many would envy. As cupbearer, he would be granted access to the king's presence as much as anyone else. He was wealthy. He was influential. He was, had the life that most would kill for. And I wonder if ever there was a moment he crossed his mind, what if I just let someone else step? Do I really want to give this all up? Do I really want to step out of a life of luxury? Do I really want to step into a life of turmoil, difficulty, opposition? And Nehemiah in that moment steps into the king's presence and he risks it all. He risks his very life to share the burden that God has given him with the king. And well, the rest is history. When it comes to taking a step, there's always a cost that is associated with taking a step. And in light of what it cost Nehemiah, what is it calling you and I today to step into where God is calling us to step? What is, it, what is it going to cost you and I to step into where God is leading us? I think Jesus in Luke chapter 14, 25 to 33, shares what it costs us to take the step. He says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Skipping down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice at the very beginning it says that great crowds accompanied him. But how many in the very end of Jesus' life on earth were truly following him? There's a cost to stepping out in faith and obedience. You know, it's one thing to see God's love. It's one thing to see God's miracles, his good works. It's another thing to step into God's love and to be that love for others. It's another thing to step in and say, God, I want to be part of your good work here on earth. God, I want to step in and be, be that miracle. That God, I don't want to just see, I want to step. And if all that Jesus wanted to do was make himself known to the crowds, well, he would have called them simply to see and never to step. But Jesus doesn't call crowds. He calls disciples. He calls disciples who are willing to count the cost to renounce all that they have, their influence, their position, their status, everything that, that we've been blessed with, and just to simply say, God, I lay it down. I appreciate it, but God, if you call me to give it up, I'll give it up in a heartbeat. He gives those the right to be called his disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? 
anything in one hand it means to follow Jesus because you love him. To wherever Jesus goes, you want to follow in those footsteps because you love him so much. You just want to go where he goes. But I think in another sense, what it means to be a disciple is not just to follow Jesus, but to allow Jesus to send you out where Jesus wants you to go. Sometimes we think we just, I got to go where Jesus wants us to go. And Jesus says, well, I'm actually going to, in my, with my presence, send you somewhere. And it's going to feel like I'm absent. My footprints aren't going to be evident for you. But I want you to trust me because that's what it means to be a disciple. Not just to follow in my footsteps, but to follow in places that you might not see me because I am sending you to be my presence. As John 20 says, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he said these words, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And what did he say to them after saying this? Receive my Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And the moment he breathed on them, the Spirit of God came and filled them. The presence of God began to dwell within them. And when the Spirit dwells within you, Jesus will send you out to be his presence. And so what I want to leave you with today is if God's Spirit dwells within you today, don't just ask where God is. Don't just ask where is God's presence. Ask to whom. To whom is God desiring to be? To whom? To who is God sending me today? To whom is God calling you to be his presence towards? What is your God-given burden today? What is God calling you to see that others may not see? What is God, where is God calling you to step or perhaps not step? Finally, what does it cost you today to follow him? Maybe you think to yourself, oh, I know what it costed me 25 years ago. Has it cost you anything recently to follow him? We're just going to sing a song right now, and we're going we're gonna to share in communion again. It's been so nice just to have communion together, hasn't it? I just want you to sit, and I want you to reflect and worship and pray, and just reflect on these words to the song, and then we're going to come back together and share communion again.